0: Well, we are in the book of Jude, and we're going to continue our study here uh, next to the last book of the Bible. And if you start nodding off, I will go turn the AC on, so seeing if you're going to nod off right now. Okay, we just did that, so here we go. i kind of let that happen, if I remember how to do it it must have come on it must be over 78 76 sorry in the book of jude it's been a little while because last week we had the losings here and and then uh, we had a week and then we had a week interruption with interruption with uh, in our study of jude with uh, easter sunday and so it's, I feel like it's been very erratic, our study, and I want to draw some things together here. We're only in verse 3 of the book of Jude. Jude only has one chapter. is one of the shortest books. Um, but we're taking a very deliberate study of this, and we are moving very uh, cautiously and wanting to really understand uh, the fullness and the depth. Uh, we often try to go at a pace... That allows us to um, really get the gist of the book. I really try to, I know some of you say you don't try to do that, Pastor. I say, well, I do. I do try to maintain a pace so that we don't lose the principle or the force of these letters. Largely in the New Testament, most of these were intended to be read in one sitting, uh, not just Jude, the short one, and 3 John in uh, Second John, but all the books of the Bible really meant to be sat down and read in one setting or taught, um, and uh, we sometimes lose track of that. So I do try to keep up a pretty decent pace, um, but with Jude, because of the brevity of the book, I've chosen, instead of trying to maintain a good pace to get through a book, I've really slowed it way down and gone deep into it. And that has taken us a long time, where we're doing two and three weeks on a single word, Uh, that we have before us. But this morning, I want to back us up a little bit, get a running start at understanding one simple concept that is not just here in Jude, but as we're going to see is throughout scripture, but we're going to deal with two different errors that have crept in to the church. Nothing new. It was there way back then. And so our passages are going to address those errors that the apostles had to deal with. Most of our New Testament is written because men were going around in the early churches teaching lies. And so most of these letters, including the book of Jude, were written to correct them and to say that's not the truth. And so uh, we have a need to do that. Uh, To recognize that's why these letters were written. Uh, That means we have to address issues as they arise. And hopefully in the midst of addressing what is wrong, we understand what is the truth. We don't want to lose track of that need. And so we have uh, spent a lot of time on verse 1 and 2 talking about what the truth is. What does it mean to be the called, the sanctified, the preserved? What does it mean to have mercy, peace, and love multiplied in us and to us? Uh, We've spent a lot of time understanding that. And now we come into the need that we looked at two weeks ago to contend for the faith. That there is a facet of the Christian life that understands that there will be in this world opposition, not only out there, not only in the workplace, in the schoolyard, in the neighborhood, but within the church, that there are those that creep in, and that is what Jude is greatly concerned about, who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so when you hear someone complain about churches, well, they're full of hypocrites, I don't know if they're full of them, but they sure have a few. Um, And they've had them all the life of the church. We've always had those who claim to be something they are not, who come into church. And so uh, we know that there's opposition out there and there's opposition inside. And so we need to be on our guard, the Bible says. And here in Jude, verse 3, it says uh, that he wants you to uh, contend earnestly for the faith, that that's what he wanted to exhort you. And exhortation is basically a uh, strong instruction. Uh, It's what parents do to their children. Uh, You better do that or else. When you say that to your child, you're exhorting them. You have not punished them. You have not forced them. You are giving them a choice. You do this or face the consequences. And what Jude is saying when he exhorts them to contend earnestly for the faith is if we don't do this, there are serious consequences. Uh, Perhaps the book of the Bible that, that lays out those consequences most clearly is the book of Hebrews where it says, if we fall by the wayside, there is no other salvation, so you've, you've lost everything if you lose this. So why are we containing the faith? Because it is that precious and important. So we come to this need to contend earnestly, to fight, to recognize that there will be opposition. We should anticipate it. We should be prepared for it. That that doesn't make us mean-spirited. We are not uh, seeking to attack others, but we are defending the faith. We looked at a lot of passages two weeks ago talking about the need to stand. We are taking a stand. That is a defensive position. We are not told to go out there and attack the enemy's camp. Uh, we are told to take a very powerful stand position that many might interpret as that, but it is not. It is simply defensive. We are assaults in the world are one that are characterized in Scripture as incursions of love that we go in and we, in our interaction with the world, we don't come to them in an antagonistic attitude but one of loving concern. Let me share with you the truth of Jesus Christ, the faith that I have, the gospel message that we're going to talk about this morning. And so we go out there and love should be characterizing our attitude even while we are somewhat defensive, that we are careful to recognize that the world is in opposition to God. It hates Him. It hates the idea of Him. It hates the authority that He carries. He, they hate the whole necessity to humble themselves before Him. And so we realize that the world and all that they stand for and all that they promote... And they promote it heavily in your life through the, through various media.s um, They promote it. Uh, and it is a philosophically and intellectually and materially all in opposition to the truth of Scripture. And we can we we played that out extensively two weeks ago. And so while we are wary of it and should be very cautious, and the Bible talks about that, that we are are. In jeopardy, if we do not take that cautious approach, we will become worldly, become like them. And once we get in that condition, what does Paul say? I am afraid for you that the gospel was preached to you in vain. It's worthless to you. If it doesn't change your life, um, church is worthless. (laughs) Going to church, praying prayers, if it doesn't have an impact on your life, become more Christ-like, it is worthless, worthless. Are there people in churches like that? Yes, all kinds of them. And that's not an excuse for you to be like that or to avoid it, to avoid church, but rather to avoid being like that. The solution is not for you to avoid what God has commanded you to do completely, but rather to avoid being the hypocrite of claiming to be a Christian and not living it. And so we are called to contend earnestly. And throughout all those passages that we studied several weeks ago, we found that uh, the other words that we used was to endure, to fight, to stand, to stand fast. These are the words of Scripture to describe the Christian walk. Does that sound like a walk in the park? Does that sound like uh, sliding down a slide? Um, no, it's not fun. It's not always easy. But it is necessary and beneficial, and in the end, it is our joy. And yes, there are joyful things that aren't fun. Did you know that? Um, since Maria just delivered her baby, oh, she's probably nursing or something. Um, is delivering a baby, how many of you delivered babies here? Just one? Put your hand up if you have delivered a baby. My hand is up. Trust me, if you're a father, you delivered that baby with your wife. Because it was, was it fun? It wasn't fun for me. I mean, my wife is telling me things. I'm like, this is my wife? In the midst of delivery? Get over here! And boy, when she grabbed on, and she's like, I go, oh, you're having a contraction. Now I'm having pain to share with your pain. There was nothing fun about delivering a baby, but it was joyful, wasn't it? Full of joy. And so do not associate joy with fun. Because some things that are the least fun are the most joyful. And the Christian walk is one of those. Are there times that the Christian walk is enjoyable? Yes. Absolutely. But even when it's hard and difficult, we have joy in it. And so we talk about contending earnestly for the faith that when we do so, that we will have the peace of God has understanding, a confidence, a, a sureness, a settledness in our faith, and it is evident to everyone that there is a difference that Christ has made in us. So we are coming to verse 3 now, and we're looking at the last phrase of the verse. It says, contendously for the faith, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we want to investigate this phrase. What does it mean that it was once for all delivered to the saints, this faith of ours? Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we just commit this time to you and we pray that you might direct our thoughts into your word. Uh, Lord, that they might not be filled with our own ideas, but your truth, that your spirit might direct where he needs to convict us of our sin and of your righteousness, of the judgment to come, that he might do so. That he might uh, illuminate us to turn on the light to our understanding, to uh, correctly uh, understand the words before us and their power and their principles, that he might do that work, that where he needs to comfort us, that where he needs to encourage us, that he would do that as well. Lord, that is well beyond the capacity of this preacher to do all of that through one sermon, but is well within your abilities, by your spirit to do so, even in this single sermon. So Lord, we give this to you. Pray you might work in it mightily this hour, Uh, these few minutes that we spend in your word to draw us that we might be responsive to that and not dig our heels in, but uh, walk into your truth, um, to your glory, honor, and praise. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, the faith, not our faith, but the faith, is a very technical term in Scripture, We'll find it in several places. Paul uses it extensively. When we're talking about the faith, we're not talking about whether you have faith, whether you, uh, that Sunday school's talking about, Bill's talking about your faith, that it should be secure, it should uh, be well-founded, it should be strengthened, it can grow. All those things are our individual faith. But when the Bible talks about the faith, it is really talking about the gospel. It is talking about the body of teachings of Jesus Christ and the person and work, what he did of uh, leaving heaven's glory, becoming man, living among us without sin, uh, teaching, performing those miracles, demonstrating his divinity, and then being crucified by the Jews and Romans together. They all managed to get involved. Um, and being in the grave three days and then resurrecting. And the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, that whole work of Christ and really going all the way back to creation, the scriptures um, are what we call the faith. You would refer to it as Christianity. Not only the uh, theological teachings, the the principles, but the living of it and the uh, requirements of it the commandments, uh, all of that is the faith. And so we are told continuously for the faith, not your faith. I did imply that last two weeks ago quite a bit. I wanted to take it a different tact, that you make sure you secure your faith, that you're established in it, that you're taking a stand. But the stand we really take on, the thing we trust in isn't our ability to trust. I don't want you to trust in yourself, in your faith. I want you to trust in the faith. Because that body of truth is unchangeable. It doesn't vary. It doesn't feel right one day and then gets discarded the next. It is constant. It is our faith. It is the faith that Christ has delivered to us, as we have seen. Uh, We have been granted this knowledge of God, of His ways, of His person, of His requirements and of his loving care for us, that he has met those requirements on our behalf because he proved over 4,000 years of you trying, mankind trying, that no man can meet God's requirements. Every one of us stands guilty before him. And so God in his love gave us this body of knowledge whereby we could receive it and that requires your faith to receive it, no doubt about it. But he, we call it the faith, that body of work of God, from creation all the way through the recreation of the individual believer, and then ultimately the recreation of the heaven and the earth. So that is the faith that Jude is talking about here. Uh, the half brother of our Lord, this is the, who Jude is. So he grew up with Jesus in the house. And. Uh, is sharing with us uh, his perspective uh, and his care and concern for the churches that he was involved with. So we come to a phrase here that how we understand what the faith is referring to. And we can take you to several passages in Ephesians and Romans where Paul uses the faith, very specifically referred to the gospel. And, And maybe I better do that. Let's turn to Ephesians just so you can see. That I didn't make that up. And uh, turn to Ephesians chapter four. It says um, in verse. Uh, let's pick up in verse four. Well, let's go to verse one, because we've already talked about the calling. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is all, above all, and through all and in you all. So we find this idea that the faith is is comparable to the gospel. And again there are other many other passages we go to. I just wanted to include one at least so you see that there that the faith is referring to not your faith but the body of work of God on our behalf, this teaching, this truth. So Jude tells us that this faith was delivered to you. It was delivered to the saints, technically, is what he says. We're going to talk about that here shortly. And he uses a couple of words to describe how it was delivered to you. It was brought to you. It was brought to us. This body of work of God, from creation all the way through to the recreation, this truth was delivered to us. And he says it was once for all delivered to the saints. And this is going to get us into trouble a little bit. Because now we have some theology we have to deal with. What does once for all mean? Some have taken this to mean that it means once for all time. That is, that uh, there would be no further need for any other work of God beyond the work of Jesus Christ. That he finished it. That it was completed. That the, the requirements of God were met that there was no longer any need for any further sacrifices, and that this is once for all time, that the faith was established, that it was completed, that it was finished. Others come to this and say, no, this is referring to once for all people, that all men are given access to and have opportunity and are called to receive this faith. And thus, what Paul or what Jude is trying to say is that the faith, it was once for all men, was delivered to the saints and, that, and we're going to have responsibility to share it with others. So now we have a choice, right? You can either say it's once for all time or once for all people. But there is a third choice, um, and that is not to choose between them, but to choose to accept them both. And this is called a both-and apologetics. It's not one or the other interpretation, because we go to different scriptures and we're going to find out that both of them are true in scripture. And there are many times that biblical writers purposefully do not fill in a couple of words that we would like to see, because they intend to mean more than just one thing. And I believe this is one of those instances. So let's go to our scripture reading earlier this morning in 2 Corinthians. I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We read there earlier during the Bible reading portion of our passage, and I going to just pick up on this a little bit for you to see this once for all people Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5 says for if we are beside I'm sorry for the love of Christ compels us because we judge this that if Christ that if one died for all then all died Now it is pretty obvious what that all is about, right? Is it all time? No, it's all people. One man died for all men. And that one is capitalized there because that one man is Jesus Christ. Verse 15, and he died for all, that those, and so we don't refer to time or minutes as those, that those who live should live no longer for themselves before him who died for them and rose again. And so we find in scripture very clearly that one of the facets of this once for all work of God, this faith that is once for all, is once for all people. It is once for all man that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore they have earned their wages of death. Because as the wages of sin, Romans 6.23 says. So all of us have that need. We are all in that condition of being at enmity, at odds with an enemy of God in our sin. And so Christ did not come to die for just some, but for all. I'm pretty sure that's what 2 Corinthians 5 said, did it not? He, one, died for all. You might think, well, that's pretty clear, Pastor, I can get that. And yet, in our churches and our theological circles, you would be shocked at how many churches do not teach that at all. They believe that Christ only died for some the elect, the chosen, the ones he chose to die for before he even created the world that existed. And what they do is they take this word all and they make it instead of all people to make it all kinds of people. Well, what does that do to us? Well, now... Um, that means that he chose some to save out of rich people and some out of poor people, some out of Jews, some out of Gentiles, some out of women, some out of men. But he just So he chose to save all kinds of people, but not all people. And of course, they would go back to Jude and say, you see, it was delivered once for all to the saints. So it's only the saints that get the faith. But we're going to see that that's really not what he's saying at all. And so, yes, this is a very important theological argument that we have to make. We have to make a distinction. We have to go in there and say, that isn't true. Christ didn't die for all kinds of people. He died for all people. He died for you. He died for me. Not because... He chose me before the foundation of the earth that He would only die for me, but because I am one of the population of this planet that is a sinner, born in sin, sinning by commission, and I have guilty. I have that guilt. And I have a need for a Savior because I am at odds with God. And so He died once for all men that anyone and everyone should come to him. Now, I have a several little verses to really help us fashion this. You say, well, it says to the saints. It was delivered only to the saints. It doesn't say only. It was delivered to the saints there. Let's find out why it was delivered to the saints. Keep following down in Second Corinthians chapter 5. We're still in Second Corinthians 5. We've determined that Jesus died for all men. So, what is unique about giving it to the saints? Why was it given? And the saints, by the way, aren't what the Catholic Church calls them to be. That you know, you have to go through all this rigmarole to become a saint. In the Bible, a saint is a holy one, one who has been made holy, not by uh, doing miracles and all these things, but by or by being righteous, but made holy by receiving Christ as our Savior. These are the saints. If you've received Christ as your Savior, that you say, I want to become a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ does something, takes away your sin, that's great. But that doesn't make you a saint, that just makes you neutral. (laughs) So God does more. That's not enough. His son died for you. That's not enough just to die for you to take away your sin. He also wants to give you something, great gifts, and among those, his righteousness. And that makes you holy. So you're a saint if you have received and become a follower of Jesus Christ. So in 2 Corinthians 5, we find out that he died for all. And so by that, all, I would conclude, can come to Christ. But They must come to Christ as the only way. So let's jump down. I'm going to skip a very important verse we're going to come back to here very shortly. Let's jump down and see... What are we supposed to do with this? Verse 18, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given, that's that word in Jude that would be what? Come on class, help me out. What did it say in Jude? Delivered. He has given this to us. He has delivered something to us. Why? Here we go. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So why was it delivered to the saints? Not because they were the only ones who could receive the faith, but because we who have received the faith have been given a responsibility to share it with others. That we have been given a ministry of reconciling people to God. That is we come to God, we come to people and we say, "All right, you're a sinner. I was too." And we can rehearse the Ten Commandments with them. That's a great way to show them they're a sinner. I said, well, let's just go to the Ten Commandments. You ever take the name of the Lord in vain? You ever cursed? You're guilty. You ever disobeyed your parents? You're guilty. You ever coveted your neighbor's stuff? Well, that's an American pastime. You're guilty. There, I just, conv- you're guilty of at least three right there. Bam, bam, bam. That's one third of the Ten Commandments almost. We don't even get into murder and which Jesus says if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. We won't get into adultery, which Jesus again says if you lust after a woman, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Now you're up to half of them. Have you lied? Oh man. Have you kept any of them, folks? (laughs) You're pretty much guilty. So we can conclude our guiltiness and we come to the world with this really bad news at first. Well, you're guilty. And because of that, God as a righteous judge has to judge you. Because if you let the guilty off, are you a good judge? No. The only ones that are going to praise you are the criminals. Well, God is the righteous judge. He's not going to let anyone guilty off. Price has to be paid. And the price for sin is death. And so we come initially with some bad news. You're guilty before God and you deserve eternal punishment because God is holy, holy, holy and you're not, not, not. I say, well, where's the good news so far? Well, you got to start with where people are at. If they're not ready to acknowledge that, you're not going to be able to share with them anything good. The good news is, is that God loves you. You're a sinner, yes. You've made yourself his enemy by your sin, but he loves you. How does he love you? Well, he loved you enough to come, send his son to die for you. To die in your place. But he's not going to force you to receive a gift. Not going to force it on you. You have to accept it. So who do you die for? That's the question we're asking. But our ministry, the reason he delivers it to the saints is so that we can deliver it to others. We have a ministry of reconciliation. We have the entire body of knowledge about the faith, about the gospel, is in our hands when we carry our Bible around. It should be in our minds because you should be reading, memorizing, and meditating on it. It should be in your hearts because you believe it and you should be living it. Unfortunately, not everyone does, but it should be there. But at least when you carry it around, you got it in your hand. Here's the complete body of what you need for the faith. It's been given to you. Men have died to secure this for you in your own language. They have been murdered for translating this. Their homes were destroyed and their printing presses burned for printing it back in the day. Just to make sure you could get this today in your language. It's that precious. It is the faith. This body of work, of knowledge, of what Jesus Christ has done and who God is. And so we come to them and we are here to deli- because God has brought it into my life, I have a responsibility, a ministry, a ministry to be his ambassador to bring it into others. This is the work of the saints, is to bring the word of God the faith, the gospel, to others. So Paul here in 2 Corinthians, Christ died for all people, and because of that, we go to all people with this body that was presented to us. We received it. You know what? If that's enough for you, shame on you. Christian, Christian, well, I'm safe. I accepted Christ as my Savior. Maybe even got baptized. I did that all, and now I, I got my eternity figured out, so now I can you know, go walk my life and uh, go up to my cabin in the woods and just sit and enjoy being a child of God, knowing that I got my eternity taken care of. No. The force of this is that what's been presented to you, God says, present it to others also. So God, Jesus Christ, died for all men. Because of that, we have a commission to go to who? All the world. Making disciples, preaching the gospel to every creature, it says in Mark. So we are supposed to go to the whole world as ambassadors of Christ's kingdom. And so we are going out with that message. That's why it was delivered to the saints but yet, it was for all. It was once for all men. Now, the idea that it wasn't for all, and is only for the saints, I'm going to give you another passage that I'd like to throw at you a little bit, and that is in 2 Peter chapter 2. Just to help solidify your understanding... That Jesus did die for all. If if Second if Corinthians five wasn't good enough, and a lot of other passages, including Romans chapter five as well, let's go to Second Peter chapter two verse one. This is one of my favorite verses to run by Calvinists, who will say, "No, Jesus only died for the elect. God only loves the elect, and everyone else, God has condemned to eternal flame." In chapter 2, verse 1, this is a fascinating statement of Peter. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, notice, even as there will be false teachers among you, he's writing to a church, okay, that's what I said earlier, "There there are opposition members in churches. I do not ever deny that. I just pray they're not in my church. Let's keep going who will secretly bring in destructive heresies we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come but this is the next phrase i want to talk about even denying the lord who bought them think about that a second what did he just say they are these false teachers are denying jesus the one who bought them now if they're denying jesus are they saints no, he says they're false teachers. They're false prophets. And the Bible has really bad things to say about false teachers, that they have no hope, that they are condemned already, that, they, that you don't even talk to them. You get away from them. You avoid them. Um, there's strong words about false teachers. We're going to see some of them in Jude. They're here in 2 Peter as well. But I want you to notice something. Jesus bought them. The lowest of the low, the worst of the worst in biblical language, these are the dogs. These are those that come in and are wolves that are preying on the sheep. These are the worst of the worst. And what did Peter just say? They're denying Jesus who bought them. Jesus paid the price for them too, his death was sufficient for them. It it was available to them because Jesus died once for all. He didn't have to die for each one of us. He didn't have to die a million deaths. He just had to die one time for all men. Jesus died for you. Does that mean you're saved? No, it means that you can be. Because you do not force gifts on people. You invite them to accept a gift that you've paid for. If you make them pay for it, is it a gift anymore? No, you've just conducted a business transaction. It's not what God is offering you. He's saying, here's a gift. And you have to receive it. I paid for it. God says, I've paid for it, I, I, I've delivered it, I've wrapped it, and here it is, but you have to receive it, you have to accept it, you have to make it your own. You must take possession of it, I will not force it into your hands, in your life. But let there be no doubt in our minds that Jesus paid the price for all men to be saved. And that is wonderful news because it means that he paid the price for you to be saved. There's a song that we sing, there's room at the cross for you. There's room. There's ample payment. Payment has been made. There's an account with a positive balance in it waiting to be drawn on by all men. For Christ died for all men. Even, for the worst of the worst, false teachers who come in and try to destroy the church from inside. Even those nasty people, Jesus bought them. He paid the price for them too. So any idea that God only loves the chosen ones, certain ones, the elect ones, uh, that he only died for them, oh, that we would understand this is a horrible error. This is a falsehood that destroys the nature of God and his work. And it also destroys the calling for us to be ministers of reconciliation. Because now, we don't have to go to all the world because God didn't love all the world. We don't have to share Christ with everyone because God does wants, And here's the attitude. Up until William Carey broke open the modern missions movement and he had to leave his church to do it, because he says, if God wants the heathen saved, he can do it without your help and mine." That was the prevailing attitude. And he writes it. He says, No, God has called us to be the deliverers of the faith. It's been delivered to us. It is for us to be ambassadors and deliver it to others. And so, all men have access to the gospel, to the faith. But I also want to take you to Hebrews chapter 9. Because remember, we're not only believing that it says that he has delivered it once for all men, but once for all time. And again, Hebrews 9 is going to open this idea up to us. Let's see what verse I want to start with. Let's start in verse... Oh, no wonder I'm in verse says I was like, that's not right. There we go. Let me get the right chapter. I'm in chapter 8 and sub-chapter 9. Let's start verse 11. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once For all, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifer and sprinkling the unclean and sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the of the eternal inheritance. The whole purpose of Hebrews chapter 9 is to say, listen, and if I read the many, many verses before that and chapters, here's what the author of Hebrews had to say. He said, you know what? Throughout all of Israel's history, from the giving of the law to Moses on through... The priests had to take sacrifices every day, morning and night. Whether anyone brought a sacrifice or not, they had to offer a lamb in the morning and a lamb at night. Every day. And every time, every year at least, you had to take a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, to the temple and sacrifice it for you and your family, for your sin. Sometimes bulls, sometimes goats, other animals, <laughs> rams. Um to cover your sin. But it was obvious that this was a repetitive act that kept going on again and again and again and again and again, and again which tells you something that it wasn't complete. It was never finished. You are never done. And now he comes to Christ, and he says, Christ is a better sacrifice. Why? Because it was once for all. One sacrifice, and never did it have to be repeated again. Once for all time doesn't have to be repeated again cuz it was perfect it was the perfect sacrifice and as you know as much as the israelites tried to have lambs and bulls and goats and that had no blemishes the fact is none of those were sufficient none of those were full none of those were perfect and so here comes christ who at just the right time the bible says while we were yet sinners, while we were without strength, Christ died for us, for the ungodly, not for the saints. He died for the ungodly. You see, just the right time, Christ did this once for all. This is also great news. You know what it means? And Hebrews goes into this extensively later on. There is no other sacrifice for sin necessary. To pay the price of sin is impossible for man. And now, because Christ has paid it for us, it's unnecessary to even try. Why don't we have animal sacrifice today? Because Christ finished it. It was done. One time for all time. To cover the sin of all men. So let's not pick between those two understandings of once for all, but Understand that they are both there in Scripture. Christ died once for all time and once for all men and it is completed. The work of your salvation, the hard work of your salvation is done. The payment has been made. The question now is, do you want it or not? Now, I've given away some gifts in my day to children and relatives and some of you on occasions Uh, You guys give gifts away, and um, several gifts every now and then. Sometimes on Christmas Day, you know, you see the kid open the gift, and it's broken before the day's over, and you're like, oh, that was a waste. Perhaps the worst thing maybe is when they don't want it, and they just kind of set it aside. and And the word for that is garage sale fodder. You just gave them garage sale fodder. not something God doesn't give those kind of gifts. To receive the gift of God is to make it your own and realize this is the most necessary gift, the most valuable gift I'll ever receive my entire life. But I have to receive it. I have to make it my own. God's not going to force you into heaven. He's not going to force you into his kingdom. He's not going to force you into his family. So he paid the full price, and once for all, and now we as the saints, having received it, have responsibility to minister it to others. And this is what is wrapped up in this very concise phrase, and that's what Jude is all about, conciseness. Very concise phrase, the faith, which was once, del- and for all, once for all delivered to the saints. That idea is what Jude wants to remind everyone of. Listen, this was brought to you by others. For them, probably by Jude. Jude probably brought them, but certainly others may have easily been involved. Um, you've received it. Now you have to defend it. Because if you do not cling to this gift, to this payment, to this sacrifice, there is no other available. This is the once for all deal. This is the only way to heaven. There are no back doors, side doors, windows, or trap doors. There is one way to heaven, and it is the door Jesus Christ. Says this is the once for all. So not only is there an inclusiveness that all men can come, but there is an exclusiveness that this is the only way in. everyone has to come. And that is while the other two facets is a once for all sacrifice of all time for all people are very exciting and make you smile, the idea that this is the only way to heaven is disconcerting because the consensus in our world is that oh just find your own way to God and God is disgusted with that you see when Israel just wanted to tamper with that a little bit they weren't going to throw out the sacrifice they just wanted to go after the other gods too kind of like the Hindus they just add gods and you go to India, and you'll see big billboards, and I recognize Jesus right there, but he's just listed as one of the alternatives. Just one to choose from. You know, Or all of them, just take them all. Well, you know what happened to Israel when they did that? They added the gods of the nations in? The one true and living God says, uh-uh, and he destroyed them. He dispersed them, he sent them into captivity, he turned his back on them because they had turned their back on him. He does not share your worship. He demands it exclusively. Because he is the once, and may I add, the only for all. He is the only begotten of the Father who came and died. It is the only way. And if that offends you, I would challenge you to take it up with God at your judgment, where you stand guilty. And he's the judge. This is a judge that has said, I'm willing to pay for your crime once my way. I don't know about you, but if I'm in a courtroom and I'm guilty of a crime and the judge offers me once, I don't complain to him, can I have another offer? And call him unloving when he's already willing and offered to pay for my crime himself from his own resources, but only his way. And I don't leave there complaining. There should be more ways. He should be willing to pay for my sin, my ways I choose. No, you're the criminal. You're the guilty party. That's why we talk about God's grace and mercy. And it is the arrogant, the self-loving, the boastful, and the proud take it in their mind that they can go to God and dictate terms of their own surrender. You don't do that. You're the guilty party. You come on God's terms. And praise the Lord, there is a term. His name is Jesus, by which you can come and be received by God into his family. This is the faith, which was once for all time, for all men, Delivered to the saints that we need to stand fast, guard, contend, fight for, because it's the only way men can be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us that moved you to send your son to die on Calvary's cross on our behalf for your love that extended even further to make sure that we heard the gospel this day, to give us a choice, that we have before us your word in our own language whereby we can stand fast in our faith, in the faith that you've delivered to us so we can have a confidence in this, in your truth. And Lord, we know that the world wants to undermine it and call it fairy tales and and. discredit it and yet they are unable for this is our hope and our only hope Lord help us to stand fast in it and Lord our prayer is that in thanksgiving we might live in a manner that is acceptable in your family in your kingdom in your court where we stand called and sanctified and preserved. Lord, we cannot cease to give praise to your name. Lord, we do pray this morning for those of the number here and that we will encounter throughout this week who have never received the gift, who have never humbled themselves before, who have never recognized their guilt, who have never known of your life and the sacrifice that you've Provided for our sins. Lord, our prayers that you might convict them by your Spirit as you've promised. To your honor, praise, and glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.